I'm going to record this talk. So, um, so I was asked by a friend to give a talk that was maybe more traditional tonight. So, um, so that's that's a good uh, opportunity for me because I love to draw from the traditional teachings. Uh, and it is uh, the 11th month, not to mention the 11th day and the 11th month. How many people were like aware when it was like 11 minutes after 11 this morning? Um, <laughs> my wife and daughter were like all prepared to make wishes just because you're supposed to like make a wish when it was 11 seconds after 11 minutes after, you know, it was like, okay, I'm sure they all came true. So, uh, uh, and uh, that's why I'm, see, I'm already lost off, off the subject. <laughs> uh, but uh, I thought I would draw from this wonderful book called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. If you're interested in the traditional Buddhist teachings, this is a great place to uh, dig in deeply. And uh, the Satipatthana Sutta is the, uh, the, the Satipatthana is translated essentially as the four foundations or the four orientations of mindfulness, uh, the four kind of areas of experience that you can be mindful of. And, um, and as such, the Sutta is the foundation of, of Theravadan Buddhism, and, and really it's the foundation of all at least uh, basic mindfulness practice in all Buddhist traditions, I would say. Even the traditions that aren't really, don't even know about this. Uh, still there's sort of a residue of the Satipatthana um, in all of them. And the, the four foundations briefly are the body, so that's paying attention to the breath is, is the uh, the first foundation of mindfulness, and any attention in the body, um, in any sense. Uh, the second foundation is the foundation of, it's called, it's translated as feeling, the word Vedana, but it just refers to the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality of everything that happens moment by moment. So it's not about emotional feeling, but just how does this feel? How does that strike you? Uh, the first impression, uh, sometimes called. The third foundation is called, is called mental states, so it's kind of just like your, it covers both mood and, it, and thoughts and um, emotions, um, states of mind. And the fourth foundation is called dharmas, and, and it's um, essentially the Buddha suggests paying attention to certain uh, Buddhist teachings. Uh, so he covers things like the Four Noble Truths, the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, uh, and the topic that I want to talk about tonight, which is the five hindrances. Five hindrances are uh, desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. And um, they are, in fact, what they hinder, actually, is the calming of the mind. They hinder the development of concentration. So they don't, they don't actually hinder mindfulness, per se. Um, but they are qualities that appear in our minds and our bodies, um, both in and out of meditation. They don't, we certainly don't have to be meditating to uh, experience uh, these qualities. 
but there's qu quite a bit of uh, literature, we could say, exploring them in pr pretty much every, virtually every Dharma book has some uh, discussion of them. And, and certainly anytime you go and retreat, you'll hear about them because they really become very evident when we're trying to meditate uh, really devotedly in a kind of full-time manner as we do on retreat. And they certainly uh, relate to uh, recovery and addiction. Every one of them has some direct correlation to both our addictive habits and, our, and the risks of relapse. So there's a lot that can be said about them and that can be explored about them, but particularly what I wanted to talk about tonight was the antidotes to the five hindrances. So the various ways that we can work with these energies, these qualities. And one of the things that I love about Buddhism, and it's also true of the 12 steps, is that it's uh, so practically oriented. It's not, this is not a mystical teaching. Uh, this isn't a religious teaching. It's not even a Buddhist teaching, strictly speaking. Uh, just a, 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 a teaching about, about being a human being and how to deal with that problem. So um, there's a nice little chart in here uh, in Satipatthana. Uh, that's drawn from uh, some of the commentaries. So uh, the commentaries are uh, teachings and writings that were produced uh, after the Buddha died. So really mo the, the most prominent commentary is the Vasudhimaga, the Path of Purification. It was, I believe, something like 500 AD, although I could be wrong. It could be 500 years after the Buddha. There's a 500 in there somewhere. Uh, in any case, the, just to say that this isn't, uh, strictly speaking, something that the Buddha said, but these are kind of interpretations of and developments of, uh, out of the Buddha's teachings. So this um, chart starts with sensual desire, so it's more specific than just saying desire, as the first hindrance. And uh, these are the... Uh, the antidotes that are recommended for sensual desire, sensual desire if you were struggling with that. And uh, to sort of to understand that originally these teachings were for monks and nuns, so uh, it has a certain orientation towards celibacy and uh, asceticism. So the list here is, uh, the first antidote is general acquaintance with and formal meditation on the body's unattractiveness. I'll go into that further, but... Uh, <laughs> Second one is guarding the senses. The third one is moderation in food. And the fourth one is good friends and suitable conversation. Uh, and so um, the unattractiveness is a classic teaching, and it's, it's in the Satipatthana Sutta. The, the Buddha kind of goes through all the parts of the body and makes it really sound disgusting, and, um, which, which can be if you've looked lately, but, um, 
But of course, this is really uh, in opposition to our culture, sort of glorification of our the beauty of the body and, and sexuality and all that. And 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 again, uh, just to say that a teaching, this teaching was uh, meant to help monks and nuns to quell their lust, basically. Well, they said, you know, if you're finding yourself attracted to someone, someone kind of look at this and or contemplate this stuff. And as I said to some friends as they were coming in tonight, you know, just look up your lover's nose if you want to get, you know, that's just one way to do this practice very quickly and uh, it's highly effective. Um, you know, the beauty of the hair when it's in your soup, you know, just, you realize that these things are very relative, and they're really re- relative things. And, uh, we really only expose certain parts of our body, uh, the parts that we think people will like, and we kind of hide the other parts. I had a colonoscopy lately, recently, and they, they sent me the pictures. Yeah. <laughs> if I was attracted to myself, I wouldn't have been after that. So. Okay. Well, I was thinking about how we could relate this to recovery in a, in a way that... <laughs> and, and this is what I thought. There's a wonderful story of the Buddha um, before he uh, set off on his spiritual journey. You know, he was very, raised in this very privileged, privileged environment and pretty much partying all the time partying hard, I think, because there's this story of him waking up after a party and all the people that he'd been hanging out with, these young, attractive people, were all passed out. And this snot was kind of like caked up on their, you know, and they're kind of like oh, hung over. And, you know, and it, I thought, wow, yeah, I've had that experience. You know, <laughs> that I can relate to. So, um, sort of, Rather than thinking of the unattractiveness of the body in terms of relapse prevention, the unattractiveness of being drunk. You know, once you're sober, you know, and you go to a party, you're like, was I really like that? <laughs> yeah, I was, you know, and it's ugly. It's really, it's really disgusting. Uh, so uh, the, I just, I'm trying to make connections with recovery. So, you know, I'm, uh, help me, you know, just... Stay with me here. You know, forgive me if I'm extreme. But, uh, but I think, uh, to me, that is actually, you know, it is a good practice for me. It is an antidote, and it's something that I've done. I've ha- sometimes done, and sometimes I need to do. Like if I'm at a party, like that happens from time to time. You know, I don't often go to parties where there's alcohol, but from time to time I'm in that situation. Or I've been, like as a musician, been playing in a bar, and it really does help me to not drink, to just really look at the people. And go like, that doesn't look attractive. So there you go. Antidote to desire for drugs and alcohol. Okay, okay moving right along. That's just this, that's just one. And I've got about fifty of them here, so we're gonna be here a long time. Um, all right, I, I want to get to a couple of the fundamental teachings. Um, which some of them aren't mentioned in this list. One of the ways of working with desire, and the, really the prime approach to working with all these energies, is to first be mindful of them. So um, I like to associate this with rigorous honesty that we talk about in the 12-step world. The being, we have this impression that desire is pleasurable, 
But if you actually pay attention to the sensation, the experience of longing, of wanting something, it's actually unpleasant because it's a feeling of lack. And, it, and it's, it's very, it's ener highly energetic and it's pushing us towards the object of our longing. And so it feels like it's about pleasure and there, there is that seeking for pleasure. But if you actually go into what's it feel like to long for something, you realize it's uncomfortable. And this is the, the Buddha's second noble truth. The truth of the cause of suffering is this longing, this craving, trying to hold on to things. So it's very, it's kind of um, against our kind of impulse to actually turn around and experience the craving because the craving is very outward oriented. It's very other oriented. But what the practice is really encouraging us to do is to turn, turn the mirror back on ourselves and look at what does this feel like? What does this energy that's running me, that's driving me, feel like? And uh, is it actually pleasurable? And when we see the discomfort and we understand that that letting go is actually freeing. That not pursuing the sensual pleasure, that's not the way to happiness and satisfaction. This is the, really the core of the Buddhist teaching, and it's also, of course, what we learn and understand when we take step one in our recovery. Because we learn it's letting go of the craving, it's letting go of the addiction, that's freeing, even though all along we thought what we needed was more, or another one. But the, we discovered that that was, that was a fruitless search, and, and so step one is very much this realization, this experience that, oh, letting go of desire is actually freeing. But it takes attention, it takes mindfulness. Um, uh, Mindfulness also means the word sati, sati patana, the sutta. Sati is the word that's translated as mindfulness. It has the the roots of the word are related to the word memory, or the, or just to the, related to memory or remembering. And so, oftentimes we talk about uh, the most important part of mindfulness is just to remember to do it. Another aspect of an antidote to addiction is remembering where craving leads. So if we can catch the arising of craving before it becomes obsession, so we catch it really in the state of just noticing that it's pleasant, then we can avoid following it to its conclusion. There's a wonderful story that uh, about Ajahn Sumedho, who was the first uh, Western monk studying with Ajahn Chah, Jack Cornfield's teacher. And Ajahn Sumedho, when he was a young monk uh, in Thailand, uh, his teacher, Ajahn Chah, uh, invited him to a teaching that he was giving to a group of nurses who had come to the monastery. And um, these were young nurses. Thai nurses. I mean, what do I have to say? You're probably very attractive. Um, and Ajahn Sumedho had been a monk for a fairly short time, like a year or so. And, and um, so he sat there while Ajahn Chah gave teachings to this group.
group of young women and Ajahn Sumedho was, you know, a celibate monk. And after the nuns left, Ajahn Chah kind of turned to Sumedho and said, so, how was that? Really, and obviously he'd been testing him by, by making him sit there. And Ajahn Sumedho said, I like, but I don't want. And Ajahn Chah said, Excellent, perfect. And he went around quoting this to all the other monks then for weeks. Ah, Ajahn Sumedho, he really understands. This is remembering where that's going to go if I follow this. For a monk, who's, you know, he's not allowed to hit on the nuns. It's not in public, you know. Um, I mean, the, the nurses, the nuns, the nurses, anyway. Um, just, cor- you know, correct me if I w- my mind wanders. Um, but this is also a practice of guarding the senses. So guarding the senses means that you notice liking, disliking, or neutral, this quality of feeling. You notice that, but you don't get caught up in it. Uh, another really essential Buddhist teaching is that before craving arises, which is really the road to suffering, before that arises, there's the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And if you catch your experience at that level, then you're able to avoid following it all the way into craving. So this is, a, this is guarding the senses. There's uh, some people who misunderstand guarding the senses to think it means don't look. You know, and there, there are even monks in Asia who will, you know, they won't look at women. But um, the teachers that I trust um, really have you know, convinced me that that's a, a misunderstanding of the, of the practice, that guarding senses is just seeing, oh, I, I like, but I don't want. I'm just, there's, it's pleasant, but I'm not going to pursue it. And we can have the same experience around, our, around drugs, alcohol, food, sex, whatever our addiction is, all of the above, you know. Um, <laughs> when we just kind of, you know, oh, yeah. I, well, the, the one that gets me is when I'm walking down the street in Berkeley, uh, when they smell some marijuana, which has been known to happen in Berkeley. <laughs> and I smell it, and, I, you know, actually, I, I, not to be proud of myself, but I do kind of do this practice, like I smell it, and I, wow, it smells good. You know, I like it. And I know that if I start to think about it, right, if I start... Oh, I wonder what kind of dope that is. How much do they get for like an, a gram these days? When I used to buy the ounce, now it's like a gram. It's like so expensive. And cigarettes are fourteen dollars a pack in New York City, so I don't know how anybody smokes anything anymore. But anyway, go there. But you know, you're just noticing it. Oh, that's pl- yeah. But knowing that if I start to obsess about it, that's the road to relapse. It's the same thing with alcohol. Oh, yeah. Wow, that martini looks, you know, that, that, uh, uh, what are those ones with the tequila and the, you know, the um, margaritas? I mean, they look good, you know. They just look good with the salt around the edge and everything. Okay, we're safe here right now, so don't obsess, but I'm just saying. You know, <laughs> you know and you just see it. Oh, uh, yeah, that looks good. And just noticing that and then being able to, you know, let go. And, I, and I'd have to say that anybody here who is, been sober for any period of time, knows what I'm, not only knows what I'm talking about, but already does this, right? We, we do, this is a natural kind of uh, relapse prevention practice that people uh, 
people do. Guard, it's a, and you can say that you're a Buddhist now, you know, I'm guarding my senses. Um, and, uh, but I love that the last um, antidote is good friends and suitable conversation. Because that means go to a meeting, you know? It's like, you know, if you're falling, you know, if you're falling into obsession, if you go to a meeting, you'll find good friends and suitable conversation there. Uh, I'm, I may only get through a couple hindrances, but uh, that's okay. Well, the second hindrance is aversion, which is uh, just kind of the flip side of desire. And, and uh, you know, one of the Buddhist teachings is how, like, individuals have kind of tendencies towards, most people either have more of a tendency towards desire or aversion or delusion. So um, so I'm an aversive type. Uh, if, if you knew me, you would know that. Um, and um, well, now that I've brought it up, I guess I better explain it a little bit. The desire type is somebody who's always longing for new experiences. And kind of the, the uh, description is, you know, the desire type walks into uh, a room or a, a, a group of people into a party, let's say, and, and it starts looking for, oh, who do, they, who do they want to talk to? Who are they going to meet? This looks brilliant. Uh, the aversive type is um, not looking for new experiences. <laughs> well, likes to stick with the tried and true, um, tends to kind of look through at things through a critical eye and kind of walks into the party and is like, looks for like, oh God, you know, look at the way those people are dressed, you know, and, and kind of looks at the negative. The delusive type walks into the party and goes, where, where am I? <laughs> what, what time is it? Am I at the right party? So, uh, and we all have a little bit of each of them, right? But, but most people have a tendency towards one or the other. So aversion, back to the hindrances, uh, the antidotes to aversion. Well, the classic antidote is, is loving kindness. Uh, I'll, I'll read, read out of the book again. It's nice to have a book. Um, so general acquaintance with and formal meditation on loving kindness, <coughs> reflecting on the karmic consequences of one's deeds, uh, repeated wise consideration. I don't know what that means. It sounds like reflecting on the karmic consequences of one's deeds, but anyway. And the last antidote, good friends and suitable conversation. (laughs) Well, go figure. (laughs) So uh, loving kindness, of course, an obvious antidote. It's kind of like, I'm angry, send love. And it's something we do in the program as well. You know, for your enemy, you're supposed to, you know, if you have a resentment, pray for him. It's the same thing, same practice. Um, uh, one of the things that uh, that helps me when I'm really judging someone uh, is to try to evoke compassion. And uh, you know, this I remember this. Uh, the thing that really made this clear to me was I was working for a newspaper or magazine distributor in Venice Beach um, some years ago, before I got sober, but after I was practicing Buddhist meditation in that little window of five years. Um, and, uh, and his bookkeeper was a really, really cranky guy who was just like, uh, I was going to use that, uh, derogatory ter- term, and so I don't want to offend anybody else, withdraw that. Uh, he was just a really cranky guy. 
bitching all the time. Well, there, I used one. Okay, I, knew, just, I just realized that like the derogatory terms were both like uh, f- female-oriented. Interesting. I apologize, but it's just an observation anyway about our culture. Um, and um, one day I was, you know, complaining about the guy complaining all the time, and <laughs> might have been a clue. It's a version to a version, you know. And, uh, and my boss said, well, you know, when I hear him doing that, I think that's probably the way he talks to himself, too. And that changes how I feel. And that just, like, oh, really, really touched me. And that's really stayed with me. It's a really, it's a great contemplation. Because it, it's, it, I think it's really true. You know, anybody who's like, you all the time is probably talking to themselves in the same way. And so that's a good way to kind of let go of your aversion and, con- and convert it into compassion. Um, of course, again, mindfulness, feeling the, the pain, the, the heat of anger, feeling that, ah, there's nothing pleasant about it. Uh, as much as we long for doing that. Um, and again, remembering the risks, or the, as it says here, remembering the karmic results um, of acting out of anger. Yeah. Huge, huge uh, antidote. And, I, and I, I remember when I started to actually get some kind of a grip on my anger, when I just started to walk out of the house when I would get angry with my girlfriend. And that, that was like a huge step, you know, instead of engaging. And it was like, if I stay here, I'm going to act, you know, I know what the results are going to be. I need to get out of this situation. And that was the best I could do. Um, and, of, you know, once again, good friends and suitable conversation, you know, that go to a meeting, you know, when you're caught up in that. Uh, you know, and this 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 antidote, the the going to a meeting, just really points to the wisdom of the recovery programs, and that that uh, I mean, here it is, in the ancient Buddhist teachings, you know, uh, telling us to do this thing that that we do, and 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 just and to kind of uh, you know give away the rest of the hindrances. It shows up in all five hindrances. It's the one thing that's consistent through all, antidote to all five hindrances, is connecting with others. And, um, and there's a classic teaching where the Buddha says that the whole of the spiritual path is n- sometimes translated noble friends and noble conversation, same, same thing. Uh, and just on a, from a totally different viewpoint, um, I've worked some with... Uh, some addiction researchers, uh, the late Alan Marlat, uh, I interviewed him at one point for the Inquiring Mind and uh, that the journal, the Vipassana journal, and um, and he's somebody who, at times, was really, uh, I think, intentionally uh, in opposition to the twelve steps, the the steps themselves. There were certain aspects of the steps that he actually, or and of the kind of um, assumptions in in the twelve step programs, and particularly AA assumptions, that he set out to disprove. Um, with maybe some success, according to his research, but 
uh, that kind of research is pretty tough. I mean, he had a bar in the basement of the of this graduate student place, and like, you know, and they gave people alcohol and told them there wasn't alcohol in it. And, I mean, that, anyway, uh, we won't go there. But what was so interesting was that he said, well, after they go through our relapse prevention program, we suggest that they go to AA because they need this, what he calls social support, good friends and suitable conversation. So here it is, even the people that are like, kind of like, well, the 12 steps, it's not all true, and I know, you know, you got God stuff, and you, know, you don't need all that, but you actually ought to go, you know. <laughs> and, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, the practice in 12-step programs is going to meetings. That's our practice. In Buddhism, our practice is to meditate, and there's other things, but that's kind of our core practice, and the core practice of recovery is to go to meetings. And, and uh, you know, it's sort of, we see that across traditions, it's pointed to as, as so vital. And, and it's something that, that, despite the fact that it's in these antidotes, it is kind of, it's played down in Western Buddhism. It's, uh, this is uh, one of the kind of shortcomings of the way we practiced Buddhism in the West. And that's a, another story, a pretty long other story. But uh, that, that's certainly one of the things that I think we can bring, people in 12-step programs or people in recovery can kind of bring to the Buddhist world, this, this awareness of the importance of community. So uh, I'll go through the other hindrances. I have, I have time to do them a, a little more briefly. But um, So the, the third hindrance is Sloth and torpor, uh, sleepiness, dullness of mind. And uh, you know, the traditional antidotes are uh, to strengthen the posture, to open the eyes. Um, the, the, one of the ones that I like that's really practice-oriented is uh, trying to increase your investigation quality. So to see if you can become more curious about what's happening. Can I really... what? What's going on right now to really be more clear about that? Um, you know, the sleepiness is, a, is actually a trigger for addiction. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And, and I think it gets overlooked sometimes in that regard. Uh, and it can be mostly in, for meditators like, well, I just need to stay awake during my meditation. But, but there's a greater issue for addicts, which is to, to be aware when you are tired and to kind of apply your wise sort of choices at that time. For instance, to choose to go to bed rather than to go to the refrigerator or the bar. You know, alcohol masks fatigue. You know, Friday afternoon, people are worn out from the long week of work. Do they go home and go to bed? No, they go to the bar for the happy hour, you know, get happy. So I think mindfulness of fatigue, uh, just like mindfulness of any of these energies, is really important so that we can not get caught up in our reactivity to that. I know fatigue for me is a real trigger. Um, uh, And of course, uh, one of the antidotes is good friends and suitable conversation. That'll wake you up. Go hang out with your friends. Uh, The... Flip side of 
sloth and torpor is restlessness and worry. So it's uh, where that, and, and I was talking about this with some therapists last week at a workshop, I was doing the workshop in Nashville, and um, talking about uh, depression and anxiety, uh, which are kind of the, the emotional states that go with uh, sleepiness and restlessness, and how um, that, and I was really suggesting to them that before, because a lot of these therapists like teach mindfulness or use mindfulness in their, in their work. And I was saying, you know, if you're working with somebody who's really anxious, I wouldn't suggest that you right away have them be try to trying to necessarily be mindful of uh, their breath or or they need to do some calming practice to start, which can be a breath, but more of a concentration practice. And, and that with depression, rather than having people sit down and try to meditate because their energy is already low, to do some energizing practice, which could be a breathing, an energetic breathing practice, but more likely going to be a physical movement. Uh, um. So with the classical antidote to restlessness, well, let's see what Analayu says. Um, a good knowledge of the discourses. That's interesting because what he's saying is that restlessness sometimes is caused by uh, not knowing what, why you're doing this. So you're like, and it's kind of an agitation that comes, like I'm trying to meditate, but you know, I don't, nothing's happening. I don't know why it's not happening. And so he says the discourses, but you could just see, say a good understanding of, of practice. Um. Uh, being well-versed in ethical conduct. Again, this is less about the energy in the body, which I will talk about, but, but this is really about um, if you sit down to meditate, and as Jack Cornfield says, it's hard to meditate when you've been out raping and pillaging all day. So, um, so be, having, living an ethical life allows you to kind of feel more at ease and peaceful. And if you sit down and you've got a lot of guilt hanging over your head, it's not uh, so easy. This is nice. Visiting experienced elders. Oh, it's kind of sweet. But again, I would say that's about really uh, in, having more confidence in the practice. And then good friends and suitable conversation. Um, uh, some other practices. Uh, um, uh, the concentration practices, particularly uh, counting breaths. Um, the uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has a great practice called gatas, which is in my book, uh, Burning Desire, which is just repeating these different phrases, in, out, deep, slow, calm, ease, smile, release, present moment, wonderful moment, and just doing that with the breath. Since you're writing down there, I thought I'd give it to you there. Did you get that all? Uh, present moment, wonderful moment, that's the last one. Oh, you're good. Um, <laughs> So, so something that's very repetitive that calms you down. Counting sheep is a good one. You know, that's traditional. Okay, that was a joke. Okay, it's not funny, but it's, you know, you're supposed to laugh anyway, just out of politeness. Okay. But, uh, you know, it is. I mean, it's just interesting. I mean, that's like it, that's the old cliche for how to fall asleep, right? Counting sheep. But it's, it's just the same thing as counting your breath. Yeah. Am I making any sense here? I don't know. Um, what I like to do with restlessness actually is open to the energy, and this is the mindfulness practice with, with restlessness. Uh, 
I think Jack also says, no one ever died of restlessness. And there's a kind of, can be a feeling, you're sitting there, it's like, I need to move, you know, if I don't move, I'm going to explode. Nobody ever exploded from restlessness, as far as we know. Um, if they did, you know, there was no record of it, and probably somebody just cleaned it up and moved on. But when you're sitting, to, you know, when you feel, start to feel that urge to kind of breathe into it, and rather than like, oh, I need to get rid of this, to kind of let it come up as energy, not as information, like you have to move, uh, and not even as something bad, but just feeling it as energy can actually be something that can be transmuted into a positive energy. It can be like an uplifting energy. And, and you kind of, you know, what you do is kind of feel yourself as being more spacious than you are, or than you think you are. Let's put it that way. Speaking of you know, uh, shifting perception, which is uh, I was talking about before during the question period, that's not recorded. So, it's, okay. Um, when you kind of open to this sense of spaciousness and just let this energy inhabit, I I can feel it right now. It's woohoo. Uh, that can be a really nice thing to do with, and it allows you to uh, to contain it, to hold it, and not feel because restlessness can be a very claustrophobic feeling. So if you can kind of go, oh, I'm, there's plenty of room for this energy, and just let it out, and just let it kind of play out. And so the fifth hindrance, doubt. Uh, similar uh, antidotes to uh, restlessness, actually. Um, good knowledge of the discourses. Being well-versed in ethical conduct. Strong commitment. Good friends and suitable conversation. <laughs> when in doubt, go to a meeting. So, the, so what's being said here is that, uh, first of all, a good knowledge of the discourses. If you're, if you're really questioning, so doubt can take different forms. If you're having quest, doubt about, well, is this practice really worth doing, or how are you supposed to do this, I don't, is to kind of study the Dharma and get a better idea of what you're doing, rather than, oh, I went to the Buddhist place because I read Buddhism was good, and it was kind of weird, and so I left. You know, it's, it's to, to get really some sense of what, what's going on here. This isn't a faith-based religion. Uh, faith is part of the practice, but it's not what it's based on. And um, so having some understanding of why you're doing this, because why should I come in here and sit still with my eyes closed for a while until somebody rings a bell? And what's the point of that? And if you don't have any understanding, you're just doing it, well, somebody said it was good, or I thought that, you know, after a while you can kind of get, well, this is too hard. I need a reason. I need some more motivation. So to study, study the Dharma, um, and also, you know, to just practice. Um, it's, it's, we learn most of what we learn in practice through just doing it. Of course, what I see as the, the greater doubt for most, uh, most of us is our doubt of ourselves. Oh, I can't really do this. You know, some people will be like, well, everybody was sitting so still, and they all looked so peaceful. But my mind was just racing the whole time. Yeah, so was everybody else's. They just looked peaceful. That's, <laughs> it's comparing your insides to their outsides. Now, 
Now, doubt uh, for an addict is, one of, is certainly one of the most dangerous of the hindrances. The doubt that you are an addict. The doubt that you are an alcoholic. And as I like to point out, it's somewhat ironic, if not absurd, that the typical response to deciding that one isn't an alcoholic is to go have a drink. (laughs) Now, I'm thinking that if you realized you weren't an alcoholic, you wouldn't really want to drink. You know? Well, like, why is that the first thing you think of when you decide you're not an alcoholic? There's a little disconnect there, you know, I think so. But, uh, we, you know, we might say that for the person in recovery, uh, you know, in AA, anyway, read the big book. In NA, read the basic text. You know, study the Dharma. Well, if you're in doubt about your addiction, study the recovery literature and see if it resonates for you. Go to a meeting. <laughs> see if, you know. I mean, I remember the first 12-step meeting I went to it was a cocaine anonymous meeting in West Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was dating a woman who worked at a bar near the airport in Los Angeles. I don't know if anybody knows about the bars near the airport in Los Angeles, but a certain occupation that involved uh, less clothing. That, uh, and anyway, she had a little cocaine friend uh, that you know, was causing her problems, so she decided to go to a meeting, and I, being a supportive kind of guy, went along to the Cocaine Anonymous meeting. Uh, and, and being a meditator, a Buddhist, <clears throat> such as I was, uh, I, I was somewhat disturbed by the lack of, of calm and quiet in the meeting. I found it rather noisy and disturbing. I really didn't think these people were very spiritual, like me. Uh, I really related to the story the person told, and I found it very funny, and I just really st- struck home, which didn't mean that I was an addict by any means. I certainly it didn't occur to me that that might be an indication of anything other than the fact that it was a funny, funny story. But uh, looking back now, I realize that, uh, yes, that's why I related to the story so much, because I was one of them. You know, I was just there being supportive, you know, but uh, there you go. Um, so certainly I think going to meetings is one of the ways that we uh, quell our own doubt we hear our, when we hear our story. You know. uh, so good friends and suitable conversation is a wonderful antidote to doubt and all the rest of the doubts, all the rest of the hindrances. So I have managed to come in under the line. I knew this was going to be a fairly long talk, so I, I, uh, uh, for those who wanted uh, to ask more questions, I'm sorry that there wasn't more time, but uh, hope this was of some use tonight. Um, and I think that uh, I just want to close with uh, a couple minutes of loving-kindness practice to get rid of any of that latent aversion that's hanging out. Relaxing and breathing into the heart, whatever that means to you, of having a sense of opening, 
of being receptive. So in the spirit of this talk and these antidotes, let's begin by just bringing to mind good friends, dear ones, ones who have helped us on our path, on our path of recovery, However long you've been around, as we say, maybe going back in time a bit and letting the faces of those who have supported you and helped you along the way to appear in the mind and opening your heart to them and wishing them well. Wishing them happiness and joy in their own recovery. Wishing them peace and health. Just letting these images of good friends move through the mind, move through the heart, staying connected with them. And remembering that you have been a good friend to others on your path. So wishing yourself happiness and joy in your recovery, peace and health. May all those we have shared this journey with be free from suffering, free from addiction. Thank you, as you may know, and if you're new here, you might not. Uh, there's a basket for Donna, which is just uh, a word for generosity. And that's how you support my teaching. So the fee for the class goes to Spirit Rock. And uh, so if you want to donate anything to m- me, you may do that on your way out. So thank you. And I will see you next month, if not sooner. Thank you. And uh, I guess... Happy Thanksgiving.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.